Hello, and welcome to Leather Talk with Mr. Bullet Leather 2020. I'm your host, Brandon. Have you ever thought about what it might be like to step into the mind of a leather dom or submissive? Well, then this is the episode you've been waiting for. Our next guest holds the titles of San Francisco Leather Daddy 23 and Mr. Alameda County Leather 2009. He has a PhD in developmental psychology, he's an advocate for a kink awareness, and a master to three and a half slaves. Let's get ready for some more leather talk. Welcome to Leather Talk with Mr. Bullet Leather 2020. Before we get started with this episode, I wanted to put out a disclaimer. To those who are unfamiliar with the leather scene, the language used to describe some dominant submissive relationships historically in BDSM culture have been widely referred to with the labels of master and slave. There is an ongoing discussion within the leather community regarding the use of these terms for consensual authority exchange or power exchange relationships. This is by no means a reference to human trafficking or political or historical systems of oppression. These terms are one way of expressing the sexual roles within certain kink relationships. The views and opinions expressed are those of this guest only, and do not reflect any official position of the Leather Talk podcast. Hello, everyone. This is Brandon, your Mr. Bullet Leather 2020. And today we have Master Richard. Uh, Master Richard, would you mind uh, introducing yourself, please? I'd be happy to. I'm Master Richard. I have been in the community since 1990. So coming on, what, 30 years? Mm -hmm. And... I have held a couple of titles since I've been involved in the community. One is San Francisco Leather Daddy 23. The Leather Daddies and Leather Boys was a local San Francisco title, primarily focused on um, local community development and fundraising. Really uh, was started by a number of people, including Alan Selby, uh, the original Mr. S, and a number of other important people in the life of the San Francisco leather community. I was, uh, yeah, the 23rd leather daddy. All right. And, and you also have another title? Yes. In 2009, I was honored to get the title of Mr. Alameda County Leather. Uh, that's an East Bay title. The club is the Alameda County Leather Corps, and they specialize in, again, in supporting community organizations in the San Francisco Bay Area. I was Mr. Alameda County Leather for, like I said, 2009. And I reigned with uh, one of my very good friends who was Miss Alameda County Leather. And that was Deborah, Deborah Wade. Uh, it's been a while since 
I've used those titles. I feel <laughs> like sometimes, you know, when they're that far back, it's easy to forget, but I am still very proud of them and contain a, a number of plaques on my walls that kind of commemorate those titles and title years. Awesome. And we're definitely going to get into a little bit about that and how, how you got into that. Just to get a little bit more of a mental picture of who you are, uh, you you do identify as uh, cisgender male and gay? Yes. Cisgender male, gay, kinky, if kinky is an or- orientation. Okay. <laughs> which we could get into since that's <laughs> part of my research. Awesome. Awesome. So let's talk a little bit about your introduction to the community, because we all had to start somewhere. <laughs> Do you remember the first experience you had in a kink scene or in, in a leather bar that kind of got you started? And what was going on in your mind? And, and what was that experience like? My first kink experience was when I was attending the University of Kansas. This would have been about 1985. And... There was a gay bar and I was, I hooked up with this guy who actually was not a student local in the community, but he had recently left the military and our sexual encounter had elements of kink, power exchange, toys, a number, a little bit of, you know, I get really, it's more slap and tickle, but at that point it was thrilling to me to be having sex with someone where there was an element of power and really doing some creative things. I consider that to be my first kink experience. Mm -hmm. I looked for more of those encounters while I was in Kansas, although it was a bit difficult. And then I I, uh, moved back to the San Francisco Bay area after I graduated. I was born actually in Alameda, California, and my family was back in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I wanted to get back after spending eight years in Kansas. I missed the ocean. So that's really interesting. So you're, you consider your first kink experience to be to be that experience. Now, who instigated those things? Did it just kind of happen, I guess, organically? Or did he kind of lead you into that space? He certainly took the initiative. Mm-hmm. We found each other attractive, but... I would say when it came to all that stuff, he was definitely more experienced. And he, some of it, he just started doing, mm-hmm. you know, when we were having sex. Some of it, it was more of a really kind of like a dance, but he definitely took the initiative. And I enthusiastically went along with it. <laughs> were you kind of nervous at first? Like, why are you getting rough with me? Or why are you getting dominant over me? By that point, I had seen a fair amount of porn, you know, movies, magazines, and I kind of caught on very quickly uh, what he was doing and was excited that actually I had found someone who was interested in doing those kinds of things, although I really did not know what to do or uh, had an idea about how to go about initiating it. So I was very happy that he did. So I was very willing, but I definitely just followed when it came to the whole encounter. How exciting. I'm just kind of imagining what that experience must have been like. And so now let's go into when did that kind of connect with leather? 
because you do have a couple titles. So I'm assuming that you've you've spent time in the leather community. Absolutely. <laughs> when I got back to the Bay Area, I threw myself into or, or tried to break into the leather community in San Francisco. San Francisco is blessed with having a very organized community. Lots of things going on. Always has been. I started just basically hanging out at the San Francisco Eagle. Went to Mr. S and got my first harness. Was attempting to do that, but I hung around, I would say, the edges of the leather community for about four or five years before I realized I really wanted more. Mm-hmm. I the the cruising, the play scenes and, and sex uh, was happening, but I realized this is very important to me. This part of my sexuality is very important to me, and I want more. So in 1994-95, I joined my first leather club. It was the San Francisco Defenders. I chose that because up to that point, and a little bit after that point, I had a, a strong religious side to me. I actually attended a high school seminary in Kansas City for my, uh, you know, it was a boarding high school where I initiated a fair amount of orgies and sex. Oh my um, God. And I ended up marrying a Presbyterian minister, was a minister's wife for a while. All of that was important because the San Francisco Defenders are an organization that primarily comes out of Dignity, Mm -hmm. uh, Dignity USA. That's the sort of gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender Catholics. And they're approaching leather from a more spiritual standpoint was important to me. And I felt more comfortable there. So I joined them, and that was a my real. I consider that my real introduction to the leather community in a deeper way, because now I started making uh, friends. I started really getting connected to events, starting to really know uh, the networks of different parts of the leather community, rather than just going to the bar and hanging out and every once in a while having a scene or going home with someone. Right. Now, it's so interesting that you say that uh, religion kind of played a, a role in, in, in it for you or, or spirituality. Um, I, I grew up Catholic uh, and, you know, I didn't go to like a Catholic school or anything, but I, I too was considering actually going to the seminary and I ended up deciding against it. But can you explain to to our listeners what it means to have like a spiritual relationship with leather? Cause you're not the first person to have described it that way on this podcast before. For me, it was, uh, in a lot of kink scenes, you're touching something very primal, mm-hmm. something that's uh, very deep. And to a certain extent, it lends itself to having an ecstatic experience. So there is a kind of, it's easy to interpret a lot of leather kink experiences, scenes, different kinks as facilitating a mm-hmm. connection to something bigger, larger, more than your um, conscious self. So I found that to be meaningful 
and a way to think about kink and leather as more than just something you do on the weekend, more than just a flavor of sex, but something that actually had a bit more connection to other areas of my life, to other areas that were important to me. So that whole sort of ecstatic, mystical aspect was was an easy connection for me to make. You know, the endorphin high, the intense focus on power and power exchange. Uh, if you grow up Catholic, you are familiar with power and power mm-hmm. relationships. They're kind of all over the institution and the, the theology, etc. So in some ways, there was a, it was an easy segue, an easy connection. And I find that the ability to get sort of out of your thinking conscious ego head lends itself to you need some sort of language for it. And I thought that spirituality gave me that language very easily. So you mentioned power a a lot in the last few minutes. So I want to kind of pick your brain a little bit more about that, because I know from our previous conversation that you consider yourself the dominant. Is that correct? Oh, yes. Okay. So, but it seems like your first experience came about as more of the submissive. Yes. So how long did you spend exploring those areas? And when did you finally come around to figuring out that you were more of a dominant? Well, after I joined the Defenders, I made a number of friends. One of them, um, a couple of them, uh, were a master-slave couple. And I was fascinated and drawn by the intensity of that power exchange. And as I got to know them and hung around them, I asked them to, in fact, more consciously mentor me. So we did a year, about a year, where they were training me. I wouldn't necessarily say training me to be a slave or anything like that, but certainly training me in a dom-sub dynamic and relationship. And after a while, a number of months, almost a year, I was finding it frustrating. I was finding it hard. I was finding it very difficult and not fun. And they finally sat down and said, Richard, you're clearly not a submissive. Just accept that you're a dominant and embrace it and stop torturing yourself. And I took that advice too hard immediately. It was like a ton of bricks off my shoulders. It was so affirming after spending so much time being frustrated by why wasn't this easy? Why was this difficult? I understand power and power exchange. We've agreed to do this. And yet there was always still a part of me that did not, it did not sit well. I found it difficult to submit. So with their encouragement of really just claiming this is who you are, this is how you, this is how you are, I immediately jumped in and embraced that. People around me immediately um, accepted that and supported it. And pretty soon after that, I entered my first master-slave relationship where I was the master. It was very good. <laughs> so how did that, how did, okay. 
I'm sure there's lots of people out there listening right now thinking, how the heck do you even find a master or how do you find a slave and how do you end up getting that relationship going? What what does it look like? You know, can you tell us a little bit about that? I would say there's a couple of things. One is you could go to an organization like Masters and Slaves Together. It has a number of, you know, chapters all across the United States and in some different countries. Uh, They meet regularly. It's a way to really connect with other people who are doing master-slave relationships and really care about it and share how to do it, the ups and downs, the struggles, and the sometimes rituals and strategies, protocols that seem to work for most people. Mm -hmm. You could go and look for a masked chapter, Masters and Slaves Together. I, on the other hand, did not do that. What I did was um, I just looked around and I noticed which people in the leather community, the gay men's leather community in San Francisco, were doing very intense power exchange relationships. They didn't always call it master-slave. Some people in the men's community had you know, trouble with that language or felt there was something artificial about being a master or being a slave. The image didn't quite fit. Yet their level of power exchange was just as intense. And so even if they didn't use the language, they were clearly doing it. And I started looking for that and finding it. And some of those people did claim the uh, and were honored with the title of master. And I got to know them. And a while after I was involved in the community, I started... Uh, with a couple of other uh, doms, masters in the San Francisco Bay Area, we started getting together and meeting more regularly to support each other and learn from each other as dominants, as masters. And that group still meets and we still know each other and support each other. And um, that creating that kind of personal network was really beneficial to increasing my skills as a master But generally, it's don't get caught up with the name. Look around for the people who are just doing that sort of intense power exchange and approach them because more often than not, they're willing to share and talk about it. It's not something that a lot of gay men do, even in the leather community. Mm -hmm. So it is important to work through your trepidation, your fear, and approach them and ask if you could talk to them about it. And maybe if things click, if you could continue to have conversations or maybe even do some, you know, training or mentoring. Yeah, definitely. So let's let's talk a little bit about your current relationships, because I know you have, a, is it a couple slaves or, or, or a few slaves? What is your relationship dynamic right now? <laughs> I sometimes say I have three and a half slaves, maybe four. Um, there's, there's one, there is one relationship where uh, our master-slave dynamic is somewhat seen limited, but we do get together fairly often. And so when we're in the dungeon, 
we're definitely doing that dynamic. We do it a little bit outside it, but generally not uh, ongoing 24 seven. So I sometimes say I have four, sometimes I say I have three, or sometimes I say three and a half because that one relationship is, has this complicated, you know, dynamic around when we are actually doing master slave. Oh, I see. So are you saying that that type of relationship can exist separately in the dungeon and in public or both or vice versa? You can negotiate it so that it only happens in the dungeon or only happens in the bedroom. A lot of people I know don't feel like that's enough for them. Mm -hmm. Most of, you know, my other three slaves, you know, it's basically 24 seven. We are always in that dynamic. We've been together uh, like mm, nine years uh, wow. with one. I have to go back and look. I see slaves are much better at tracking this stuff than than I am. <laughs> okay. So I think it's nine, seven, and six, or seven and five. So do you guys all live together, or you live separately? We live separately. I okay. live with my husband slash boy. Uh, we've been together coming up on twenty years, and. We uh, started out as master boy. Uh, he was not a slave. Mm -hmm. He doesn't have that psychological makeup. But uh, we did have a power dynamic. And then after a while, we decided to switch to a more sort of softer dom-sub dynamic. Egalitarian sometimes, sometimes a little more dom-subby. So that's my husband. And I live with him. And then, I, like I said, I have, let's say, four slaves that live, three of them live close to me. Uh, one lives on the other side of the country. And then I also have a pup, uh, a couple of pups, pups slash boys who live down in LA. That's my leather family. So this might be a dumb question, but how do you keep track of it all? I am very organized. <laughs> okay. I have to be. Right. <laughs> um, I, I, I take copious notes. I have a very full calendar. I, I, I use uh, my calendar apps to, their, to the bitter end. And a lot of it is often like about once a week, I sit down and I think about all of these relationships and what does each one need this week? And how do I plan that out? And then mostly it's everybody I think is good about supporting the other relationships, even though they're not necessarily uh, strongly connected to each other. They are to a certain extent, you know, they communicate with each other, uh, some of them more often than, than with others. But generally with all of that support, it becomes easy for everyone to give space when someone really needs it. Mm. Uh, and I do a lot of checking in and a lot of contact, a lot of texting, a lot of phone calls, a lot of FaceTime. And um, with the slaves, once a week, I send them commands, different things I want them to do over the course of the week so that there's some ongoing opportunities for service, opportunities to submit to a particular command and that helps to nurture the master-slave dynamic. Mm -hmm. So once a week, I'm sitting down and planning that out too. 
So in order to have this kind of family and for it to be as um, successful as it is, the, the key is being organized, is um, really thinking carefully about what it is I'm doing, setting aside that time to do that at least once a week. Well, that's that's really um, really eye opening. I think if everybody, whether you know they're in, they have four partners or one partner or two partners, I think it, that's just sort of a a great overall technique to sit down once a week and evaluate your relationships and what that what your partner needs at you know that week. <laughs> I think if we all did that, we'd have probably far less issues with our own relationships at home. Yeah, I mean, it certainly helps. Of course, there's always going to be the, the surprise event, you know, the unexpected thing happening. Right. And I would say during with all of this, you know, COVID-19 shutdown, shelter in place, quarantine stuff happening, uh, which has been going on now, right, for almost three months. Yeah. There was at least probably about a month ago, a week a day when everybody was having a bad day, everybody was having a bit of a meltdown. That was hard yeah. because everything was happening all at once and everybody needed me uh, pretty much all on the same day. That hardly happens. Um, I'm, I'm grateful that there aren't, you know, terrible emergencies all the time. And when somebody is having a hard time, most days, everybody else is doing okay. So it's easy for me to give that person the attention and the care that they need. But when something like, you know, a pandemic happens, some days everybody needs it all at once. And that's, that's, that can be hard. Mm-hmm. So the, the, your, your relationship dynamic, it goes beyond sexual domination and sexual submission. It sounds like you guys have like a real, real working relationship outside of that. Yes. For many of my, in particular, I would say a number of my slaves, I incorporate them in some of my work. I have them help me with some of my projects, or I will sometimes teach a a class, you know, at a kink event with a couple of them. And that that allows us to find other ways outside of the dungeon or outside of sex to nurture our dom sub dynamic and gives us something to work on together. And that helps. But definitely I see this as encompassing as many areas of our life as possible. And we negotiate that out as to what that looks like. And for some, as I've said, uh, they prefer it to be more focused and limited on, you know, when we do get together physically or when we're just going to be in the dungeon. Others really want that sort of total lifestyle aspect where uh, as many different parts of their lives uh, becomes an arena where we can actualize our master-slave dynamic. So I, I something caught my attention when you went back. At it, uh, so I just kind of want to go back to that a little bit, maybe just for myself, because I'm curious. Uh, you say, you know, you, you will give commands to 
your slaves, to give them something to help facilitate that master-slave relationship throughout the week. What are some of those commands that you, you know, could give to a slave at, at any given moment or time? And is it like an assignment list? Is it like you text them throughout the week and you give them certain commands? Like, what does that look like? Well, I send them an email that lists the days of the week coming up. And most days, not all, but most days, I will tell them I want them to do one thing, one thing that would uh, reinforce our dynamic and connect us as master and slave. So some of those things include like tying up their cock and balls for an hour, taking a picture of that when they first start, sending that to me, sending me a text when they untie, and that's it. So just that day, you're going to spend one hour and you're going to have your cock and balls in bondage. Sometimes it is um, ass training. Some of the slaves are really interested in um, ass playing fisting. So there's like ass training. Okay, you're going to work on a series of butt plugs over the course of the next 45 minutes. Sometimes it's just taking a picture of them kissing a boot or kissing my lock and sending that to me and some sort of dedication. Sometimes I tell them to wear a piece of clothing. Like I want you to wear a black jock strap um, all day as a sign of your submission to me. Or I want you to wear this particular t-shirt. And nobody else will know necessarily that that has any connection to master-slave dynamics or our master-slave relationship. But you know and I know that you're wearing it because I told you and you're obeying me. And that will support our dynamic. So those are some of the things that we do. That makes makes a lot of sense. So it's like, you know, at any given moment, a slave is walking around town wearing a you know, whatever, or wearing a cock ring or, or, and you have no idea, but in their mind, they're getting the satisfaction of knowing that they're living out their day really in service to what you commanded them to do. Absolutely. Got it. It works. It works really well. So, um, do you ever have sexual encounters with multiple of your slaves together in one scene or are they pretty separate? Uh, it's been both when we get together because it's Folsom weekend, right? It's Folsom mm-hmm. street fair in San Francisco. So everybody comes together and at one point or two points during that weekend, there's going to be something of a little sex party play party, uh, that we do. So on those special occasions, or like when we're all, or most of us are attending, IML, we will have scenes that involve all of us, in addition to scenes that are more one-on-one that are happening. Most of the time, though, a lot of it really is more one-on-one. That also really helps with the master-slave relationship and dynamic Mm -hmm. to be able to really concentrate on each other without others around. That might be, and sometimes, a distraction. So I try to balance all of that out and leave the group stuff for special leather event occasions. Got it. 
So I'd like to know because I have I have had audience members reach out to me who have been curious about the the dynamic of the master slave. Are there any other aspects or nuances of your particular uh, master slave situation that we could dive into more? I would say that in some ongoing way, it becomes important to figure out how are you as a master slave relationship as a master slave couple, how are you going to handle when one of us makes a mistake or does something that actually hurts the other person? So what do you do um, that when you're having some sort of like relationship conflict, eventually, if you're doing this for more than just one scene, you have to figure out some way to address issues and problems in the relationship that somehow in some way support your master-slave dynamic. So some people, what they do is they will have uh, a weekly check-in. And I do this with a number of my slaves. A check-in is a time when we just take a step back and we go, okay, so what's working, what's not? Was it easy this week? Was it hard? Is there anything you need to say to me as your master, something that I have done wrong that was perhaps hurtful? Is there something I need to tell you that I really need you to uh, change or correct that I haven't mentioned yet this week? So we do a check-in. Okay. And that really helps. Now, people differ in the master-slave community. People differ on how to do that. A lot of people do it, but they do it differently. Some do a check-in where they step out of role. So, okay, for the next half hour, we're going to talk. I am, I am not master. You are not slave. We're just two equals talking about this relationship and what's working and what's not. And uh, a lot of people, on the other hand, stay in master-slave roles mm-hmm and find a way to do a check-in and talk about it while not stepping out of the role. And that requires slightly different communication patterns and communication strategies. But for the most part, the spirit is the same, which is uh, let's take a step back and really see, you know, what's working and what's not and what needs to be negotiated or what do we need to address? So that gets into the deeper, um, you know, you're, you're trying to address the stumbling blocks because you really do want this sort of well-oiled machine where you're both really in sync. You're both connected in ways that really enable your dominant, your submissive needs to be met. And so if anything interferes with that, you don't want to just ignore that because eventually those things just pile up and it becomes harder and harder and harder to uh, engage in a dom-sub dynamic if those things haven't been addressed. So there are some, there's some relationship work that has to happen. What's nice is that there are a lot of um, tools in the whole master-slave culture that uh, enable you to do that, that really enable you to Let's communicate about this. Uh, Here's the authority and power structure that we're going to use to solve this problem. And sometimes it means that we have to come up with how do we correct um, course. 
So sometimes that means I have to punish the slave. Uh, and sometimes we have to do a ritual where there's a ritual of forgiveness, where we forgive each other. If something, if I've done something wrong, and then we move on. And the more that we do that, we get stronger and we become more in sync. And we, in my leather family and, and a fair number of other pockets of the master slave community, that's called alignment. We're seeking alignment. And um, so we work at that. And at least once a week, I'm thinking about that and we're working and talking about that. It sounds it's, it seems pretty involved, uh, which is really interesting because I think a lot of us really only see like what's on the outside. We see the the sexual encounter and the the kinkiness of it all, but uh, like diving into it and hearing that it really is more involved. I don't know if a lot of a lot of people consider that, you know. Yes, um, I, I would say that that's the thing about people who really um, are attracted to master master slave dynamics and relationships, there tend to be two things. One is they like the intensity. This is very intense. We are trying to do um, a power exchange as intensely as possible. So there, there's one is the intensity of it. And not everybody's after that level of intensity. Right. But some of us love that level of intensity. We crave it. And so... Uh, this offers a way to do that. The other is that a lot of people who are doing master-slave stuff also actually like the, the dynamics and the work of, of long-term relationships. They like trying to figure out how are we going to live together <laughs> or live with each other? Um, how are we going to allow our different life paths to kind of intertwine and um, they feel uh, at home, but you know, relationships take work, but they like that work. So I tend to think of people who are gravitating towards master slave relationships should appreciate that a lot of it involves intensity and a lot of relationship work. And if you're up for that, it's a great way to get your kink needs met. Now, I do have a, a few more questions about this dynamic. And this is really all, all new to me, only because I think, I don't know if I've ever talked to a, you know, a, a master or someone that, that lives in, in, in a master-slave relationship to this much in depth, at least. So I do have three more questions that I want to ask you. Uh, do you have slaves that have a husband or a boyfriend or somebody at home that they are tied to, but they still serve you as a slave? Three. Three of the four. Oh, very interesting. So do you communicate with their partners as well, or do you keep those two worlds separate? No, I communicate with them. Um, now, I don't communicate them often. Okay. Um, at the beginning... Uh, when I was collaring them, I would meet with their partners a couple of times. We would talk about it. I always wanted to be clear that I was not in any way intending to uh, damage or encroach on their relationship. And that if they ever felt that, that they, I would be more than happy to talk about that with them and work, a, and work something out. Um, I think also it's important 
in a lot of these cases, the partner is not necessarily uh, uh, into DOM subdynamics. Mm -hmm. All of them are relatively kinky, but in, in this case, not all of them were in, um, interested in that sort of master-slave or dom-sub dynamic with their husbands. So part of it is like communicating that, you know, what I have with your partner is distinct and different from what you have. And I hope that you appreciate that and just know that I see it as distinct and different. And I really don't want that, that to be threatening. So there is some of that communication that happens. And then and then after we get going, um, every once in a while, I check in with them, with the husbands, especially if the need arises. Um, but I try to maintain some sort of level of connection and communication with the husbands of my slaves. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. I guess that's very, you know, that's very... I guess it's a testament to how open their partners are to recognize a need that their boyfriend or husband or partner have and that they're getting that fulfilled with you. Yes. And I, I, it is. I, and I really respect them for that. I think it's, it's not always easy. But mm -hmm. um, the fact that they do recognize it and they feel, you know, I've had some frank conversations that – they feel okay with me being their master because they know I will respect them and their relationship. Hmm. And that, that carries a lot of, you know, I, I feel very honored when I hear that. Mm -hmm. So um, to, to dive into uh, another aspect of this, when it comes to cruising or, or hooking up, so you have, let's say you have, you know, four slaves, three of them have partners now, at any given time, let's say one of you goes out to the bar. Are you in your particular relationships? Are you? Do you have an agreement that you're allowed to bring random hookups home and hook up with them, or does everything kind of have to exist in the realm of your relationship only? Um, or does has that even happened? Oh, that has happened. Okay, I have a couple of slaves who really pride themselves on being sluts. Okay. <laughs> um, not all of them, but some uh -huh. of them. And they like it. However, as part of the dom-sub master-slave relationship, they like it when I'm in control of that. Mm. So if I'm lining up or if I'm making introductions or if I'm telling them I want you to serve that man, you know, for the next couple of hours, something like that, um, that becomes a way Sometimes I have my slaves just give me a report of uh, a couple of them are very, can be very flirtatious, let's say. And I encourage that at the same time, though, in order to maintain kind of this dynamic of control or authority, I have them report to me, like, did you flirt with anyone today? Tell me about it. And definitely, if it starts moving towards like actually having a, a sexual encounter or a kink scene, uh, then I want to be part of that negotiation. So you have to ask them to contact me so that we can talk about it. Now that sometimes scares possible tricks away. They don't want, they feel like, oh my God, that's too much work. 
Right. Um, and in which case, though, the, the slaves often their attitude is, well, if you can't respect this relationship I have and go, you know, this one extra step, maybe I don't want to play with you. Yeah, yeah. No, that that definitely makes sense. And I can also, um, you know, I'm just kind of like on the outside looking in, but I, I can also maybe see some sort of pleasure in knowing that you told me no <laughs> as a sub, you know, and just obeying that and uh, just knowing that like you made the call, you know, as the master. Yes. That creates a, a feeling of, you know, like um, belonging or ownership. It creates uh, a kind of boundary where they can feel safe within that. The master cares enough to say no, cares enough to say, here's a limit. And that can make it feel safe and make it feel that you really matter, that you really matter to your master or that they really care. And that's a great feeling. Right. We want that in all our relationships. So definitely. Well, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to keep, I'm going to just keep digging in here and you know, this might become a part one, part two, or just an extra long episode because I'm just so intrigued by our discussion right now about the master slave thing. Uh, but I do have a, another question is uh, I know there's different ways to uh, submit and, and to dominate and there's, you know, verbal, there's degradation, humiliation, there's physical ways that you can dominate somebody, spanking or spitting and, and different different things like that. So my question is, is as a master or, or a dominant, do you have a specific way that you like to, you know, quote unquote, train your slaves or dominate your slaves? Or are you the kind of person that kind of figures out what they like to submit to and kind of go that route? Are you adaptive in that way or does it kind of have to match? I have a core set, sort of like a foundation that I do with every slave and that okay. I would expect of any future slave. And so those are the particular uh, rituals, uh, protocols, uh, types of behavior, uh, types of piercings that I really, really, really like. And that really seemed to, you know, really fit me. And so there is a core where it's the same. Okay. Uh, but so much of this is about really trying to go for a deeper and deeper surrender, a deeper and deeper alignment. And so in order to get that, you have to really meet the individual slave where they are, what turns them on, what turns them off, and be able to use either one of those, the turn on and the turn off, in the service of a deeper surrender. So I have to, what I call, really get to know the erotic landscape of each individual man and think about uh, and try to figure out how to use that individuality, those turn-ons and turn-offs, to really deepen and increase the level of intensity when it comes to dom-sub dynamics. So that means I'm adaptable. Uh, there are certain kinks or fetishes that work for 
one slave that definitely do not work for another. Mm -hmm. And so I like, okay, I'm going to do these activities with you, you know, because it really connects with you. And I'm not going to necessarily do those activities with the person who finds it more of a struggle to get turned on when we're doing that. So maybe that's about pain. I have a couple of slaves who are pain pigs and others who are definitely not. I have, you know, a couple of slaves who are more raunchy, piggy, uh, slutty, and some that are not necessarily. Um, I have slaves who really want the experience of like fisting and others who really, that's, that's not what really turns them on or if they're not really interested. Uh, so I'm going to be doing some intense training for fisting or that kind of activity in the dungeon. I'm getting all of my needs met through all of these different relationships, but it works so much better when you know how that other person really is wired, what really is easy for them and what's hard, what really is exciting and allows them to just sort of let go and what really makes them pull back and stop and not want to continue. And that's different for different people. So I, I'm curious, it, do you have any kinks or fetishes that are like deal breakers for you? Like some things that you are absolutely just not into. And if a slave is into it, would you perform that kink just out of getting the pleasure of, of seeing them satisfied? Or are those things that you won't cross? Well, if it's something that I don't feel particularly interested in or skilled in, and they really, really want it or like it, what I will do is I will find a dom who's really into that, and then I will arrange uh, playtime. Interesting. Got it. Now, I do want to ask you one more question. about. The, I know I keep saying one more, just but just one more question of the master slave. Um, I'm wondering if you could just sort of give us a taste of what your what some of your scenes might look like. Uh, take us with you into the dungeon. All right. So I will probably pull from some of my uh, favorite activities or little rituals I like. Okay. You know what will make this even better? Why don't you pretend like the audience is your slave? And if you have to visualize one person, you can talk to talk to us like you. <laughs> okay. This will be interesting. All right. Okay. Slave. Stand right there. Here. Here's this box. Take off all your clothes and put them in that box. Good. I'm going to take this box. I'm going to put it aside because you're not going to need this, any of this stuff. Slaves should be naked. Neil. Now kiss my boots. More. Lick them. That's enough. Kneel up. Stand up. I'm going to put these cuffs on you. I'm going to attach you to the cross. 
you're going to give yourself to me. All right. Take a deep breath in. Let it out. I've got a number of floggers here. I'm going to use them on you until I'm satisfied. If at any moment things get too much, I want you to open up your hands really wide, really wide so I can see. Do that. Good. All right, I'm going to start. I'm going to warm you up. And when I'm done, I'm going to switch over to the single tail. Good. So I start off slow with the lightest flogger, warming up the back, watching the back stretch, waiting for that moment when the slave pushes back, wanting more, not trying to get away from the flogger, but trying to reach for it, stretching. Then I go faster and I go harder and I switch to an even heavier flogger. Then I switch to an even heavier flogger. I have so many floggers. So just when the back is incredibly red and I can feel the heat when I put my hand on it. And I love watching the back arch and the person squirm whenever I touch them lightly because their back is so on fire, so sensitive, so alive. Then I pull out the single tail and I get centered and I take aim right on the left shoulder shoulder blade just near the center just off the bone in that deep meaty spot and i strike and i watch the slave arch and cry out and take it all in and i wait patiently until their body has absorbed it all has felt that huge wave of power pass through them. Then I switch to the other side and I do a strike. And then I'm starting to get warmed up and I'm going lighter. I go very light, almost like a butterfly, just landing briefly. And then I do a really heavy strike, a hard strike every third, fourth time. So there now starts to be a rhythm and sometimes I start to see the welts coming up pretty quickly. Maybe the skin starts to break. And then I think, right, is that too much? Have we agreed? Are we going to go forward? Maybe we're going to go for a really long intensity. And I start going deeper and trying to make particular patterns on the back. And more than anything, watching to see how the sub takes it when they start getting quiet. They're not necessarily pulling back or flinching or trying to get away. They're just absorbing it. 
and they become quieter and they become clearly more floaty. And then I do one last strike. It's going to be hard. It's going to be intense. It's going to feel like fire all up and down their body. And I center myself and I get ready to do this one last strike. I imagine it going completely and totally through their body. And I strike. And then I sit back and watch and just soak it all up. The, the moans, maybe the tears, definitely the sighs. And then after a minute, I get close to them up on the cross and I fold myself around their body and I do a full body hug and squeeze them, holding them, pressing my chest into their back, making sure that if there is any blood, it's going to get on my t-shirt so that I have a souvenir. I have a, 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 a memory. Uh, we'll contain it. And that shirt will become the little memory of this intensity. And then I turn them around, tell them to kneel, kiss my boots in gratitude, and to kiss my cock, and to stand. And then I come in and hold them. And we just hold each other until they're ready. Oh my God, Richard. If uh, the audience isn't hard, I don't know what else will get them hard. <laughs> that was an interesting exercise. <laughs> but wow, what what a detailed... Um, thank you for taking us with you on that journey. Um, I think it really gave us a, a visual and kind of just a taste of what the experience could be like. And I'm sure a lot of us listening out there might be listening and thought of ourselves in the shoes of, of yourself as the Dom. And uh, many of us, I'm sure, have we're, we're thinking about ourselves as, as the sub and just kind of walking ourselves through that story. So thank you for sharing that. Wow. Okay. So let's, let's go back in time a little bit or a lot. Um, I don't know. But uh, <laughs> I want to go back to your experience in the title system. And I know you mentioned, you know, you haven't used those titles in a long time, but I think it's definitely, I mean, I'm assuming that it's probably having, having the, at least the first title would have been in a significant moment in your life as a Leatherman. Yes. Could you kind of talk a little bit about why you wanted to run in the first place? What got you to that point? And how did you feel when you did win? What was your platform? What was your your mission? What were your goals with that first step? Well, I actually do have my two-minute speech that I gave when I was a uh -huh. contestant for San Francisco Leather Daddy. I could read it. I would love that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so this is a speech I gave uh, on the uh, patio, uh, the stage 
um, at the San Francisco Eagle back on July 29th, 2005. This is my two-minute speech, and uh, as it turned out, I won uh, that leather contest. Well, I'm going to be timing you, so I'm going to dock you points if you go over two. <laughs> oh, my God. All right. Now I feel like I'm really there. I'm really there. All right, here we go. I am on this stage tonight because I believe in the purpose embodied by the men who hold this title. A leather daddy is someone who cares for and nurtures the San Francisco leather community. A leather daddy is someone who stands in front of the community to help clear a path to the future. A leather daddy is someone who stands behind us, all of us who care about good leather sex and its power to bring us together and bring us to the limits of our own nature. Our community is at a crossroad. We have some decisions to make, a challenge to meet. We have lost people, clubs, spaces, and places. We have lost two important leather daddies in the past year or so who gave us so much and shaped the way we live together today. And there are larger forces outside our community affecting us deeply. When I look around, I see the vibrant, persistent energy of our connection. Around us, there are new people, new expressions, new efforts, and excitement. We can either let the future happen to us, or we can actively engage in the change. We can choose which path to take. If I win this title, I would use the position to support creative, proactive attempts to meet the future. I would use this next year to bring people together to plant the seeds for a positive, shared vision of our community, a focus on creative action, not reaction, a mood of hope, not a fatalism, collaboration, not competition, and a larger picture of what we could be, not focused on only one aspect or part of this challenge, not focused on only one aspect or part of our community. Real dialogue is needed. Our, our opportunities to get together and talk about what is important are few and scattered. Let's come together and build a shared positive vision of the San Francisco leather community, a vision that is fun, caring, sexy, and daring. As a San Francisco leather daddy, that would be my dream and my goal. Wow. That's a really powerful speech. Um, you wrote that? I did. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> no. Yeah. Uh, I did really, not have a speech writer. No. <laughs> no, you, what really gave me chills is when you said, we can either let the future happen to us or we, we can be active in the change. Hmm. And I think, you know, that that may have won you the contest, just those words alone, because I think it's so important for us as, as people in the in the leather community to be a part of the change and not just to let it happen. And th there's so many um, so many examples out there of not not in the leather community necessarily, but you know, around the world of organizations and groups of people that let the future pass them by and get stuck in, in what once was and and what it is now and rather than learning to grow and to foster that kind of growth that you were talking about. I'm curious, what are some of the changes that you've seen in the community since you, you know, first came into leather and all the way to today? 
Well, certainly there's been a big change in what I would call style. The, the types of clothing and gear that people use and that really connect to people today was, was very different than it was, you know, 15, 20 years ago, um, 30 years ago when I really got into the community. Uh, so, you know, a big difference, uh, all these pups, a big difference, all of this fascination with superheroes and, and spandex. And um, another change uh, is been the wonderful growth of the furry community, um, the changes uh, related to, um, definitely related to gender and all the different genders and gender identities that are now part of the community were, you know, struggle still to find a place, to find acceptance from others in the community. But still the whole diversity of it is, is definitely different. So uh, there is a sense in which there's been a huge expansion of, of all these different kinds of expressions that just weren't there 30 years ago. So do you think that, and maybe you haven't considered this before, but uh, or maybe you have, I don't know, but do you think that all of these different versatile aspects of the community have simply just started joining the, the jumping on the bandwagon and creating this this more expansive culture? Or do you think that they were always there and simply have become more exposed and, and brought to light? I'm going to say it's a combination. I mean, okay. it's easy to point to that, you know, even 30 years ago, there was gender diversity. And uh, even if the uh, labels we used were different, it was there. But at the same time, it's the, it's the, the awareness has definitely changed. And it seems to a certain degree as if the number of people who really are stepping forward and articulating their, their distinctiveness, their difference is definitely higher. There was a sense in which, you know, you had to, uh, this is true for, you know, all human groups, uh, cultures, etc. You had to like look a certain way to fit in and, you know, to a certain extent, that's still kind of true, mm-hmm. but now there's so much more, I think willingness on the part of people to recognize that there, there's just going to be a a lot of different fetishes and kinks and different types of gear that somebody is going to find really hot, even if it's not you. And um, I think there's a lot more tolerance for that or awareness that that's, um, that's an important value than there used to be, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was actually just talking about this uh, the other day with Steve V. Rodriguez, who competed in, in, actually for Mr. Eagle New York. Hmm. And he was talking about how he may have gotten docked points for, I don't know what's, I don't know if accessorizing would be the word accessorizing his leather because, you know, in my competition, I don't know if it was, if it was so strict, but I I have heard from several people in the community. Like if you're going to compete, then you need this jock and you need that harness and you need Hmm. this type of thing. Personally, when you judge a competition, are you tempted to kind of go back to 
like a strict view of what you should be wearing in a competition or how do you judge those variables? I don't. I don't I don't have a set idea. What really matters to me if I'm judging is one, does whatever they're wearing demonstrate a certain level of uh, care and attention to detail? Does it exhibit and help the person to have sort of pride in themselves, uh, to carry themselves with enthusiasm and confidence? So does that gear really help them do that or does it detract from it? Do they look like they're confined and stiff and trapped by their gear (laughs) or does it look like it's really just part of their skin and as long as it's doing that it almost doesn't matter whether it's like you know a uh, sports outfit you know uh, uh, or anything actually so i'm looking i'm looking for that i'm looking for does it help the person come across as really uh, confident and happy to be there? Uh, and does it show that level of care and detail that they've taken into their appearance, no matter what gear they're actually wearing? Yeah. I, so in other words, really, is is whatever gear that you're wearing defining you? Yes. You know? or, or does it look like you just pulled it off, you know, out of the closet or off the rack and you actually... It makes you it makes you feel uncomfortable. Right, right. It's so funny. You're you're reminding me of, I, I and I don't feel this way particularly to this these articles of of gear anymore. But at the time, I was like looking at different part, parts of gear, you know, for different looks for my competition. And I remember one of my friends suggesting, like, "Oh, why don't you wear this cap or this hat and 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 wear these boots? Like, like they look great on you." And I like looked at them and I'm like. This makes me feel like a like a park ranger. <laughs> like, he just laughs. He's like, "Okay, then I guess we won't wear them." <laughs> like, <laughs> exactly, and unless that's exactly the look you're going for, and that you really, really like being a park ranger, it's probably not going to work, right? Right. <laughs> uh, and so you have two titles. Uh, the the second title. What was what was that all about? Did you did you feel the need to have another title, or, or did you feel? <laughs> I have been accused when I when I ran and I won. I okay. was, for a while, there, I got a bit of uh, ribbing. I got a bit of, of of fun made about being a title whore, but, <laughs> uh, or at least in danger of becoming one. Right. But um, primarily, what attracted me to it. Um, was I was a part of the Alameda Leather County uh, Corps, Leather Corps. And in a way, it was uh, a way for me to be of service to the club. And I felt like I could do it and do it well because I had the experience of doing it before, you know, about four mm-hmm. years earlier. But mostly it was because of those relationships that I considered running. And then the second part of it was, it was a focus on fundraising and doing service to the community. And that really was important to me. And I felt like I could contribute to that. So 
Yeah, I didn't have to win a title in order to do that. I certainly had done it, you know, the years before um, without a title mm-hmm. and certainly the years after. But um, in many ways, the title, the title is a place where some elements of the community uh, kind of organize, where they're really paying attention. It, it enables things to happen much more quickly it has a certain kind of, it allows you to be more of a catalyst. And I do appreciate that. And I realized at that point, given what I wanted to do in the community, having that kind of ability to be a catalyst was uh, useful, was important, and I could do something good with it. Yeah, I I definitely know what you're saying. I mean, had I reached out to you as some random person on Facebook, we might not be having this conversation right now, right? Uh, I mean, it, did did it have any weight that a title holder was reaching out to you to have this conversation over podcast? Uh, for for yeah, for a cold call, a complete stranger, it's like, oh, well, clearly he knows something about what he's talking about <laughs> in the sense <laughs> yeah. of at least he knows. You know, he knows this part of the community and um, uh, and has put some effort into it. So mm-hmm. it it I have to say it did make it easier to say yes uh, uh, because I really didn't know you. Right. But I saw this and it's kind of in a way, uh, you know, it kind of vouched. Right. A little bit, a little bit of vetting, um, you know, but. Okay, so I wanted to then uh, kind of go a little bit into your personal life. I know you talked a little bit about before, you know, off the record, your career. Could you talk a little bit about what you do for a living? And does that play into your kink life at all? It plays into my kink life a lot. (laughs) All right. So um, I'm a developmental psychologist, uh, which means I primarily do a lot of research on and, and in these days, I do a lot of research on identity development about, uh, about 15 years ago, I made the 15, 16 years ago, I switched and decided to really focus on sexual identity development. I also have a side uh, line of looking at professional identity development, but these days I'm doing a lot more of sexuality and sexual identity development. And I decided, of course, to concentrate on kink to a less degree, uh, poly, polyamory or consensual non-monogamy, but primarily kink and leather. And so I've been doing that now for, like I said, 15, 16 years. Um, I've written a book with a sex therapist that was kind of an, a, an introduction to leather and kink for primarily for people who don't know anything about leather and kink. And the original idea for that was to, to be writing to counselors and therapists, but our publisher wanted it to be a little bit more general. So it's kind of geared towards the general audience, but it pays attention to the psychology of it. This is a book, right? Yeah. Or what, what is the title of the book? It's called Sexual Outsiders. Sexual Outsiders. Okay. I, I, I'll put a link to that in the description as well. Um, so I do that, um, back now for 15 years, I have been executive director of, um, 
a community-based research organization called CARIS, which stands for Community Academic Consortium for Research on Alternative Sexualities. And what we do is we try to support and help people who are doing research on leather and kink. And a lot has changed in 15 years. Before, there was very, very few people doing this. These days, it's, it, the field is growing and it's, it's expanding and it's um, really becoming qu quite something. So a lot of what I do then is I do research and then I teach and train therapists and counselors about working with kinky clients. I oversee the dissertations of several people. Most of them are sort of focused on kink. In fact, I've got one student who's getting close to finishing and his dissertation is all about pup play. And there's now been a couple of studies of pup, pups and pup play um, in the field. And the whole, I, you know, I really see that as what I'm trying to do is improve the health and well-being of our community by concentrating on making sure that there are kink-aware professionals, that people are not pathologizing leather and kink, that people have more access to better care from doctors and therapists and psychologists. So I do a lot of that work. It consumes much of my time when I'm not teaching at a university. That's awesome. So it sounds like all around, you know, kink has really infused itself as a part of your identity and who you are, you know, yes. in all aspects. Yes. And I've been very happy, happy to do that. Uh, I did want to ask you about your program that, uh, I don't know if you, if you started it, you said, or, or, or you helped kind of get it going of the, it's like an outreach program to connect newbies with other leather people? Ah, the, I, uh, it's been what, eight years now? I started a mentoring program okay. with the Leatherman's Discussion Group in San Francisco. And we've been doing it now for eight or nine years, uh, where uh, if, you know, if you're relatively new to the community, you can jump in, join the program, and you get matched with a mentor. And then we do, different kinds of activities, get-togethers, find different ways to support the one-on-one -on -one mentoring. Right now, uh, of course, we've had to make some adjustments because of COVID-19, but right now I think we have about, uh, I think it's somewhere like 25 guys. And the program has expanded to almost a year-long program. Um, we start in January and basically go through September. And then people just, you know, they learn about different kinks. They learn about different dom-sub relationships. Uh, they practice a few things. And then they have someone that they can ask questions and talk to and figure out, you know, what really works for them and what doesn't. So does, does this program cost, is there like a fee or does it? No, no, no. Um, it's, you know. You have to be in the San Francisco Bay Area, geographically. <laughs> so right now, it, right now it's it's um, partial to just being in that area. Then, are you guys thinking about broadening to a wider group of people by going online, or is everything pretty much the way you like it right now, just local? Um, I like it. We do a lot of we do a lot. I would say at least a couple times a year, um, I have a conversation with someone in a different part of the 
United States who mm-hmm. wants to create a local program. And so they pick my brain, they ask for, you know, how do you do it? What do you do? So I certainly open to and happy to help other people start their own things in their own communities. But we don't have any plans at this point to like make this go online or do something in a different part of the state or part of the country. Okay. So let's say I, let's just say, for example, let's say I'm someone new into the community and I want to dive in and I want to be a part of this program. What are some things that I can expect to encounter? Like what are some, you say it's like a year long almost thing. What are some of, you know, the, are there like tiers or steps or what, what kind of things happen throughout the year? Well, we meet, um, a lot of it's really dependent upon what each guy wants to do. Some of them want to come in. They just want to like learn uh, what are the groups and what are the events and how do I get there, you know, get invited, et cetera. So there's um, a fair number of sort of like just getting to know the community and the mentor then facilitates that. Hey, this is happening. Come with me to this event. Because uh, a lot of the times it's very intimidating to just show up cold and not know anybody mm-hmm. this way you at least know one person and they're more than happy to take you around and introduce you um so some of it is that um we do tend to have uh we have monthly meetings where we cover some of the basics so one meeting will be focused on all right this is negotiation and safe words and aftercare right? Here are all the things around consent and negotiating. And we talk through good practices for doing all of those things that you may not, you certainly are not always going to learn it from porn. uh, And you may not really have anybody you could talk to about those things. So we tend to do that. We tend to cover Dom sub stuff, some basics on uh, flogging and whipping, some basics on bondage, um, so we kind of do uh, some basic stuff that we feel like, okay, by the end of the year, you should have some idea of, of the basics. Um, and f- mostly, though, it's about figuring out what works for you, what more do you want to explore, just so that by the end of the time, uh, you're set up to, to, to manage your own growth and development as a leather person. That sounds like a really awesome program uh, that you have going on. And I, I know personally that there there is at least one other title holder who is interested in um, starting something similar to that. So I'll have to connect you too. Okay. Before we go, I, I like to try to ask almost every guest this if they haven't touched on it already. Let's say there's, I don't know, 18, 19-year-old Billy out there in the middle of Ohio who's just waiting to graduate high school and come to LA or San Francisco or New York and kind of dive headfirst into this. What is your message to that person? Hmm. Come over to my place. No. Um, (laughs) I would say don't be afraid to put yourself out there. It's going to be scary that very first time to walk into that leather bar or to approach that hot guy or to approach someone in the community who you've heard, you know, has a reputation or a name as uh, an important person. Um, 
people are pretty friendly and welcoming, and they may not know that you're really looking for something. And so it's important to, to kind of push through that fear and take that step. And you may, I'm, I'm sad to say, you may come across, uh, you know, someone who's a bit of an asshole, but most of the time it won't be that way. Mm -hmm. And once you make that connection, uh, things can, can just bloom and grow and you'll start a journey. That's just amazing. It's worth, uh, working through that, that initial fear in order to really connect, uh, you'll be much happier. That's really great advice. How can we get connected with you? How can we reach out via Facebook, via Instagram? Uh, let's see. Um, I just opened an Instagram account. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a little behind the time on that A little one. bit. <laughs> uh, so just look for uh, Richard Sprout, S-P-R-O-T-T. Uh, on Twitter, it's Dr. Richard Sprout. On Facebook, it's Richard Sprout. So you can generally find me there. That's probably the easiest and best places. On FetLife, I'm Master R. I think it's Master R-A-S. And uh, on Recon, it's Master R-S. Um, and can you remind us the name of your program and how can we how can we get connected with that? So you should go to the um, the website is SFLDG dot org org and that's at san francisco leatherman's discussion group san francisco leatherman's discussion group sfldg uh, dot org and then you'll see a, a link uh, to a page that's about the mentoring program and i'll make sure to put links to that in the description below before we go do you have any last uh, words you'd like to share with our audience um i would say more than anything this is an incredible journey I definitely hope that just listening to this story, my story, maybe gave you some ideas, some leads, some encouragement, and um, definitely, even if it's sometimes scary or frustrating, it's out there and it's yours for the taking. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and hope to hear from you soon. Before we go, I'd just like to do a quick shout out to everyone who's been active in the Black Lives Matter movement over the last several weeks. I can't tell you how inspiring it is to really see people coming together here in Los Angeles and all over the world to support a message as important as this. This may just be one step, but it's a huge and monumental step. Black lives do matter, and it's time for voices to be heard eyes to be opened, and for violence against people of color to come to an end. Again, I'd also like to remind all of our listeners about the several organizations within the leather community that have dedicated their time and efforts to assisting the people of Los Angeles during this time of COVID. The LELC Cares, Bullet Bar Pantry, and the LA Leather COVID-19 Assist. If you or someone you know is in need, please reach out. I will have links in the description below. As always, you can find me on Instagram and Patreon as Leather Talk Mr. Bullet and Facebook as Brandon Bullet. Thank you for listening. And as always, Richard, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay kinky. <laughs> All right. <laughs>
Okay. 